Our scripture reading for this morning is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testify of the Father has sent his Son to the Savior of the world, to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. As he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love the brother and sister. This is God's word. Last week I divided the text up into two and I felt like something happened in the theological universe because pastors are always supposed to teach with three points. So I thought I would compensate for that by going back to three points and making sure that there was some sort of like balanced kind of vibe to the points. Let's try and close that rift. So this morning we're going to take this text look at three things. The first being the premise for the call. The second being the empowerment for the command. And thirdly, the practical outworkings day to day. The context of this is love, of course. The premise for the call to love. The empowerment for the command to love. And the practical outworkings day to day of that love. So first let's look at this premise for the call. Verse 7 starts out, in the original language in Greek, it's just two words. And those words are agapitoi, agapomen. Which could also be translated, those who are loved, let us love. And that's the premise. Verse 8 goes on to say that God is love. And to be born of God means that there's a, a specific kind of love, a certain kind of love that's been imparted into the life of the Christian that wasn't there before. It's not vague, vague and subjective ideas about love. It means that we now, united to Christ as children of God, can love the unlovable. Love the unlikable. Love in ways that are not our natural inclination. Ways that apart from the Spirit of God, we, quite frankly, wouldn't bother. But now, we're happy to love in this way. Something's fundamentally changed. 
But the question I think uh, that is worth asking is, how can you actually command somebody to love? And I think this is because we superimpose our human ideas of love onto God at times and sometimes onto his word. So we say, well, how can you command love? How can I command you to have warmth rise up inside you and have a particular affinity towards a person that you otherwise would have no affinity for? How can I command that kind of feeling? Well, this is where we, we see that the command of Scripture is not asking us to self-generate warm feelings for people. This is actually not about feelings at all. This is about cause and effect. Agapatoi, agapamen. Those who are loved, let us love. It's a cause and effect. The apostle is expecting that the Spirit has brought a new kind of life into our life that previously wasn't there before. So while in a sense this is an instruction, it's also a description. What the Spirit is up to in you and up to in me. Verse 9 goes on to say, this is how God showed his love and he sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. And the operative word in that sentence, look at verse 9, is that. So there's, God had a, there are grounds for the gospel and then God had a goal for the gospel. His grounds are that he comes and incarnates in Christ and he lives the holy life that none of us could live and he walks out perfect obedience and love of the Father and he is the fullness of humanity expressed and so the grounds by which, by which you and I are justified is not because God winked at sin but because he bore it. So that's his grounds. But he has a goal. And the goal is where if you look in verse 9 there's the word that. This is what he did it for. That we might live through him. That's a new kind of life. This is true freedom. Not a freedom to autonomy, not thanks God for forgiving my sin, I'll take it from here and live as my own king. It's not a freedom of autonomy, it's, it's a freedom of worship to him, freedom into a new life, freedom into new humanity. It is a congruence into a new nature, it is a congruence into a new divine, God-defined way of flourishing. It's a way of understanding that if we don't worship him, our soul lives in a weird distortion because as humans we are worshipers. Those of you with us this morning exploring Christian faith, considering faith, uh, I know that might be offensive language for me to say to you. You may say, oh, I'm agnostic, but I know it may be offensive for me to say to you, you're a worshiper, because it's a religious term, I'll say it this way. You wake up every day and you orbit your right, a life around something that you have determined as of the highest purpose, highest value, highest cause. You are orbiting your life around it, your energy, your time, your resources, your heart. You have fixated yourself to whatever it is that you are saying life is all about, and you are identifying and tying your identity to that. So all of those things we would, we would say uh, in the churches, that is worship. The scriptures would reveal that as humans, we have no choice but to have our hearts pulled, like have some sort of a gravitational pull towards something. And so we're now called to this life of love that is cross-shaped, that is God-shaped. Verse 10 goes on to say, Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. The scandalous nature of the gospel, that God moved first, that unlike all the other religions in the world, whereby we work our way up into an acceptance of the deity, our God through the cross of Jesus Christ has come, and He has done this atoning work. I want to take just a quick second to focus on why the atonement is significant, I'm going to bring it up again later because there's that scary portion of the text that talks about the day of judgment. So I want to connect these things. The significance of this atonement is atonement means to turn away wrath, to turn away displeasure, to find pleasure. 
Some of your other English translations would say the atonement or would say the propitiation. A way of saying God, there is no more uh, wrath of God. And wrath needs to be understood biblically, not just as like this violent anger, because that's not what it is at all, but God's anger and sorrow. You can't understand the wrath of God without understanding his tears. They're inseparably linked. That's a biblical understanding of God's wrath. The reason I say that is because how many of you, you can understand this. I mean, I'm, we're shrinking it down to try and relate to God as humans, but we'll try how many of you have ever been so angry you've cried? The anger brings tears. How many of you have had someone you love and care about have their life go into a destructive downward spiral and that, that destruction of the one you love motivates feelings of anger? Right? If someone that you love and care about is, has their life torn apart by a substance or by a person who's giving them ill-advised counsel and their life starts to slowly unravel, you don't sit there with indifference and stoicism and say, well, it's unfortunate, the path that they've taken. Now, I love you, and it's a fine, and love is fine, and, I, and, and my love just looks like not getting charged about this. No. If that was your reaction, I think a lot of your friends would be questioning the depth of your love. But when someone that you love has their life starting to be destroyed, and you want to tear the place apart and burn it down... Your wrath is not just because you're this violent explosion of uncontrolled emotion. It's actually directed towards, not the person you love, the destructive force. So the wrath of God cannot be understood apart from the tears of God. And so the, re- the significance of the atonement is the wrath has been turned away. That God comes, incarnates himself in Christ, pours his judgment on himself, takes the wrath upon himself, which all of humanity justly deserves. And the reason why all of that is, is, of course, significant is because it teaches us that humanity is not neutral before God. That by being born into a condition where we don't care about God, we're indifferent to God, we'll worship other things and call them God, we will give ourselves a coronation servant, and we will be God, we are not neutral with God. We, we actually position ourselves against God. We are enemies of God. We have his wrath, we have his displeasure. You might say, well, I don't like that language at all. Well, let's push this further so we can understand the significance of the atonement. What did God do to his enemies? He died for them. How many of you, if you were to go to a table at high school or something or in elementary school, and you got there with your tray of food, and everybody looked at you in the cafeteria and was like, um, this table's full, and there's four empty seats, and they were just like, yeah, this table's full. How many of you would keep going to that group of people day after day after day? I don't know. Hmm. How many of you would go to work, you go in the break room, and as soon as you go in, everybody stops talking, and they're like, you just kind of get this sense like they don't want you there. Your presence is bothersome to them. They'd like to just go on with their merry lives apart from you. How many of you are going to keep on going to that break room and trying to like conjure up friendship and win them over? When people reject us, our inclination is not to move toward them, it's to move away. And the atonement teaches us that we rejected God cosmically as a humanity from day one. And God for millennia, since Genesis 3, since we blew the whole thing up, has been moving towards us in scandalous grace. So the significance of this atonement teaches us that the disposition for God towards humanity was this displeasure, this sorrow, this judgment, this wrath. Not because he's uncontrollably violent, but because he is so deeply loving that sin has destroyed his creation. We are therefore, have made ourselves enemies of God. We're not neutral towards God. 
So if you're here this morning and you're agnostic and you're seeking Christianity, you'll be like, oh man, God, wow, I don't know that I like all this talk about judgment. There, there's no love without judgment. There's no justice without judgment. I'll get to that a little bit later. We're, our world understands this because, again, you and I can go and have a coffee and you might be like, yeah, I'm kind of wondering things. I'm agnostic and I'm a Christian. But we both agree the world is not okay. And we both agree that everybody wakes up every morning and going, you know, hey, how, do we, how can we accomplish this thing we like to call justice? Well, there's no justice without judgment. We just don't like the word judgment. So we'd rather mark ourselves in our, as people of justice. You can't have justice without judgment. So the question then becomes, who's, who's justice, who's judgment? Is it wise and true and good for all people th- through all time? This is super supersede uh, human emotion and I- ideology. Or is justice and judgment subject, subjective, something you get to choose, I get to choose, the people on the other side of the world get to choose. And we can all have different ideas of what just judgment is, but we're all right somehow, weirdly, in the end. What, what does this even mean? So the atonement removes God's wrath from those who don't even want him in the room. This is the posture of God towards us. This is the work of the cross. This is the message of the gospel. I'm going to borrow from Spurgeon, who's a theologian, 17th century, said this. Who among us would think of giving up our son to die for our enemy, for one who never did us a service but treated us ungratefully, repulsed a thousand overtures of tenderness, and went on perversely hardening their neck towards us? Not one of us could do it. How much sin did Jesus take, church? All of it. How much of your guilt did he take away? How much, of, how much of your judgment did Christ take from you at the cross? All of it. He atoned for it. The guilt of your sin is gone. I say it every week. I've said it every week for seven years. Past, present, future. The atonement is eternal. God's pleasure towards his children is eternal. And that is the motivating force for our holiness and our obedience and our desire to live to Christ. Freedom and gratitude, not guilt. And if we don't understand this, everything we're up to is in the darkest recesses of our heart motivated by guilt. Because we feel like somehow what Christ did was not enough. And we better bloody get to it and, add, and contribute to what Christ started to get it done. It's a mess. If kindness only springs from us towards those who've shown us kindness to us, then we're living far beneath our calling. This is the premise of the call to love. Agapatoi agapamen. Those who are loved, let us love. If we are only motivated to care about the people in the seats sitting around us this morning here at Redeemer, in the hopes that they in turn are going to show care for us, that's not cross-shaped love. That's calculating ROI. We're living far beneath our calling. I'm going to touch on all of this again later, but suffice it to say that when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he did not conclude that exercise by sitting down and gesturing to his own feet. So there's something that's being motivated in our hearts that only the Spirit can do. That only the Spirit can propel. This is the call. This glorious description of who you, are, you and I are now united to Christ. Let's move on to the second thing. From the premise of the call of love to the, the empowerment for the command. 
Verse 11 says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And that phrase, so loved, is not about quantity. Uh, It's about a certain quality of love. We use it like, oh, I so love that. I so am into this. I'm so not about that. And we use it like a volume as moderns. But God so loved means he loved just so. He loved in a very specific and particular way. And that's the shape of our life. And so we're not being called to a general, ambiguous, subjective idea about love. It's this cause and effect cross shape. Verse 12, if you look at it, it says that his love has been perfected in us. Now we all know, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been a Redeemer for a while. Uh, maybe actually, maybe I'll address those of you who are really new to Redeemer. Maybe this is your first day, you've been worshiping with us three or four times. Maybe you moved to the city, you're wondering if this is where you're going to call home and put your roots down, and these are going to be your brothers and sisters and your worship. I just should probably let you know, we're not perfectly loving here. Someone's going to let you down. Probably me. Well, inevitably and eventually me, for sure. You know, I'm not being, I mean, I'm, I'm, not being, I'm not being falsely humble. Okay, I'm just saying, if I had to sit there and listen to you 50 times a year for seven years... You'd let me down to himself. But we're, we're, we're in the same. You and I are the same. We're not perfectly loving. But yet, this text says the love of God is perfected. So how do we understand it? We understand it by the next phrase. The next phrase that says that we have a spirit. It's perfected because we have a spirit. Because what God's mission was through Christ at the cross is complete. It's been completed. Christ's last word on the cross... Uh, the, the Greek uh, language writes it down, tetelestai. And that's the same word here for God's word being perfected in you and I. Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. So what does that mean? By having his spirit, by becoming his children, because of the atonement, it means that the love of God is inevitable. Fruit grows so slowly. So painfully Slowly. Sometimes the growth of fruit is, I mean, if you sit there and stare at your fruit tree in your backyard, the growth is imperceptible. And if you stare in the mirror and look at the spiritual growth of your life and the love flowing out of you, it probably seems imperceptible. Like the growth is imperceptible. But when there are roots, when the seeds of the gospel have been planted and we are full of the spirit, which we are, the growth is inevitable. And this is what perfected means. It means that if we are truly the children of God, then the resemblance is inevitable. You know, here we are in spring, and here's a picture of what it means to be united to Christ and the love of God being perfected by His Spirit. You know, if one dandelion seed lands in your grass, you can come at that with the strength of a thousand suns. You're never getting rid of dandelions. They will, they will be in your grass for generations. You can dig up the whole, you can burn your lawn to the ground. And I promise you, inevitably, eventually, one's coming back. Now I know that a, a field of dandelions is not a glorious and beautiful picture of Christ's church as a modern day parable. But what it is, is a glorious and effective picture of the unstoppable, inevitable growth. Which is what this is saying. The love of God is perfected. The love of God in you is to tell us die. If you truly believe in the scandalous grace for which we, we celebrate every week, that is going to manifest in love and care. Not in some ambiguous way. The people in the seats 
sitting around you in this room. Time, care, attention, side-by-side living, on the ground, getting our hands dirty, sacrifice, loving each other. It's inevitable. This is what it ends up manifesting. What Christ has done is perfect at the cross. What the Holy Spirit is doing in you and I is being perfected continually. And so verses 13 to 15 goes on to talk about the assurance that we have that the Spirit's actually working. Now, I know it's hard, um, very hard, to love the people in this room when we are going through difficult trials and life is hard and our minds are, are, are full and heavy and our hearts are heavy. And it's hard to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And it's hard to care for each other. It's hard to curve outside of ourselves and give when it, when it feels like things are not working out in our life and we would like if attention was on us. That's hard to get outside ourselves. And it feels like the people sitting next to us are doing well and we're the ones that need the difficult. You know, this last week on Tuesday at the Jays game, New York Yankees player Aaron Judge hits this home run. Jays fan catches it, turns around, gets it this little kid who's been here for three years, from Guatemala, loved New York Yankees, loved Aaron Judge, and the Blue Jays fan gives him this baseball. The kid cries and weeps and hugs him, and many of you saw this on social media. When they went crazy. Susie and I are at the game the next day, and we're there. So we're watching the kid getting interviewed by uh, City TV. We're watching Blue Jays baseball interview him. We're watching Hazel May high five. And we're watching everybody's on the field. He's, and I just, at one point, I just looked and I said, ladies and gentlemen, the next mayor of Toronto. Because it was just like, this kid has become instantly loved and celebrated in this moment. It was really great. And uh, Susan and I had aisle seats in the 100 section, so him and his family were coming up by us. And so I made a little joke to his parents about, quick, get to your seats. The paparazzi are going to, you're never going to see this game. People aren't going to leave you alone. And the little kid says to me, actually, that already happened at school. And, uh, but then Susan and I noticed that, that his mom was holding the hands of a little boy. I don't know if that was his little brother or his cousin, but I thought, well, maybe that's a supervillain backstory. This kid is getting trotted around Rogers Center like a champ. Aaron Judge is giving him his batting gloves. He's autographed and stuff. There's cameras in his face. People are taking selfies with this little boy so they can up their Instagram game. Right? And there's his brother like, and I was there the whole time. Nobody gave me a baseball. See, there's, we can, it's hard to love others when they're holding out this beautiful gift in their life and we're in church and we feel like we're the little brother. And they're like, I got into the program. I got accepted into the school. I got the promotion. I got the job. I'm pregnant. I got engaged. Fill in the blank. What's that thing you wish was happening in your life right now? It's hard to love. But when the Spirit is doing work, it's inevitable. It comes out of us. You see, naturally speaking, naturally, we would sit down and say, um, excuse me, my life is terrible. I need some self-care. So I'm just going to curve in for the next three to four to six months. That's natural. That makes sense. That's human. But full of the Spirit. There's something in us that's like, you know what? I'm going to celebrate with my brother and my sister. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to go take a meal. They're sick. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to love the inevitability of the power of the Spirit in our life. 
And we've been given prayer and the scripture and this community, the metaphor of the body and the new, uh, of the church in the New Testament as a body, this interdependency, this interflowing of, of life and care. And so there, we have to, you and I, avail ourselves of the application. Because the application of love is not this ambiguous thing where you go home and say, Oh, interesting sermon on love today. Three and a half stars. Could have used more Greek. Ah, that sermon today on love was excellent. Five stars. I'm a Jays fan. Ah, Three stars. I could use more historical context. What was going on when John wrote this? The application of this sermon is not cerebral. It's Monday to Saturday, getting into one another's lives with true love and care and service and sacrifice. You know, you might feel like, for the last five minutes, you've been repeating yourself. Did it on purpose, wrote it all down. Because John is conspicuously repetitive, even in this, these few passages that we just wrote. What is he up to? He's getting on purpose. He talks about abiding or references to unity in verse 9, 11, 13, 15, 16. In the span, in the span of three sentences, it's like, didn't I just read this? Didn't I just read this? Didn't I just read this? You know, making disciples is repetitive business. Parenting children is, is, is repetitive business. Pastoring people is repetitive business. Caring and loving for one another. Preaching the gospel to your own soul so you can get out of your own head and love the person next to you. That's repetitive business. Let's move on to the last thing as we close this morning. The practical outworkings day to day. Verse 17. This is how we can have confidence in the day of judgment. As he is, so also are we in the world. And I touched on this earlier, the atonement. That's why we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Because we're not wondering what our verdict is. Every other religion in the world does not present this grace. If you are Muslim or Hindu or Baha'i, the Hare Krishna didn't teach this. No religion in the world tells you what your verdict is before judgment day. It's like live a good life and do a lot of good stuff and in the end cross your fingers and hope for the best. Christianity, you and I already have our verdict I already preached on it. It's the atonement. The guilt of our sin is gone. Past, present, future. And because that is true, we have confidence in the day of judgment. Not, not arrogance. Confidence. I'll tell you what I'm going to say on judgment day. I'm going to say, um, Christ is enough and I'm with him. That's all I'm saying. We have our verdict. And because that's true, confidence in judgment day and that reframes the reasons by which we live lives of obedience and holiness and love and care and sacrifice it reframes absolutely everything because if you don't understand the atonement if you don't understand the scandal of god's grace if that's not the animating force for what you do monday to saturday then you're not living a life of love my friend you're living a life of leverage because in the darkest corner of your heart you need that good thing you're doing so that God looks down and goes, I'm pleased with you. Because you have a weird truncated idea of the atonement. You have an idea of the atonement that's not eternal. It's like temporal and it's shifting back and forth. 
and you've compared the Almighty God to a human parent. Human parents are like, I'm pleased with you, I'm angry with you. But even human parents don't vacillate with their kicking the child out of the home. So we understand the atonement so that it reframes the purpose for which we live our lives of love and not lives of leverage. If you, so that we can truly love each other without it needing to earn us anything. I don't know if you've ever been leveraged, but it feels terrible. It's gross. I remember being a, a years ago in my previous life, I uh, had a speaker come to our church who in those circles, you'd speak to crowds of thousands and sometimes tens of thousands, and that's not an exaggeration for the few of you who know me when know me from that world. And we had a speaker come and speak at our church who had spoken to tens of thousands, and I went out to lunch uh, with him, and uh, we exchanged, he's like, hey, let's exchange numbers, and we're gonna, and I was like, oh, this guy wants to be my friend. And I was texting him and stuff, and it just started to start up this friendship. And I realized all of his texts were kind of like the undercurrent of the thing was like, when can I come back and speak again? And um, so I, I didn't want to face the fact that I'm like, I don't think this guy wants friendship at all. I think this guy just wants another speaking engagement. I didn't want to say, like, no, that can't be true. So I, I texted him back and I said, listen, I don't have any authority to make that kind of decision. So I don't know when he'll be back again. And I never heard from him again. And even though I was a grown man... I felt like an embarrassed and sad little child. Because when you're leveraged, it's like, I don't like, I don't really love you. I need something from you. If you and I don't understand the atonement, that the guilt of our sin is gone, past, present, and future, then all of our efforts at holiness are these weird, twisted, law gospel mashups where we think that our acts of continual holiness are like keeping the blue check on what Christ did. But what Christ did was sufficient. So we're free. And this now motivates our life of love. We love because he first loved us. Our guilt was met with his grace, and now it looks like a life of gratitude. And so this afternoon, as you enjoy your day of rest, may we consider what Christ has done, that in the end is the renewal of the world of, of, of civil life, of these bodies of ours that are breaking down, as you enjoy your day of rest this afternoon, consider that in Christ, the deepest longings of the human soul, the deepest longings of the human experience will be realized as he raises us from death to renew all, to enjoy all things. And so between now and then, we don't sit back as passive observers We are active ambassadors in this city. We are ministers of the gospel and of love and of grace. And we care for the people who are sitting in the chairs all around us. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray.